As you see out there on the sign as you came in, it's a new sermon series, Kingdom Come. And it's going to be a several week study where we're going to focus right on the kingdom of God. As I was studying for this, I realized that Jesus' first message was carrying on John the Baptist's message of repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And I think that, you know, looking at what the first words of Jesus was as he began to teach and preach, that's probably pretty important. And he's referring to the kingdom of God, so I'm thinking that, that this idea to him is also very important. Even in the Lord's Prayer, we have part of that prayer that says, Your kingdom come. So there has to be something about this kingdom that, that God really wants us to understand and wants us to, to know and wants us to live by. So Kingdom Come is the title of this series. And my, and my mission over the next several weeks is to see the realization of God's kingdom formed in the hearts and lives of this church. And not only this church, but for those who listen to the podcast. I know most of you don't even understand that there is a podcast out there. There's one on the website. This week we also got a chance to put it on iTunes. So all of a sudden our podcast listens have quadrupled and people from all over literally the world are now listening to the message being preached in this little church in Whitehall, Wisconsin. And it's not about Whitehall, Wisconsin. It's not about this church. It's about making sure the gospel goes forth. Amen. So I'm excited about that. So today we're going to begin this series with a message titled, The Gospel of the Kingdom. We're going to be looking at John chapter 3, if you want to turn there in, our Bible, in your Bibles. But I want to set this up a little bit, and I want to bring some ideas to the forefront of our thinking that are going to help us to really understand this uh, section of Scripture in relation to the kingdom. The first thing is, is that the word gospel, a lot of times we, we have lost the meaning of the gospel. We, we think that it's a political term. We think that it's a, a, just this, this theological term. What you don't understand is that gospel means literally good news. It is good news. Good news of the kingdom. So when we talk about the gospel of the kingdom, we're talking about the good news of the kingdom. And I'm going to begin this message in kind of a little bit of an unusual way by confronting some of the commonly held misbeliefs about Jesus' teachings. And honestly, if you looked at all the th different things that the world thinks that Jesus taught about or said or, or that are in the Bible, that could just be a whole huge series within itself. And some of these things I've heard um, taught and preached by radio pastors, television pastors, pastors of where I've sat in their church. And it's going to be um, an just an interesting section here to kind of start this out. And these concepts that I'm going to go over in just a moment, are, I've done searches through different versions of the Bible, including NASB, NIV, New King James Version, and King James Version. And then I did Englishman searches based off the Greek words. So I'm going to ask you a few questions. Just to kind, of, to kind of put this in a little bit of perspective. How many people here have heard that Jesus' number one topic that he preached about was hell? How many people have ever heard that? That's wrong. Jesus directly refers to hell about 15 to 20 times in the Gospels. 
depending on which version you're reading. But if you look at the Greek words hell, fire, and Hades, it's only 15 to 20 times. How about this one? Jesus talks about money more than any other subject in the, in the New Testament. How many people have heard that one? Televangelists love this one when they're asking for an offering. Well, that's wrong, too. He only talks about that about 30 times, again, depending on which version of the Bible you're using. But if you do the Englishman search of the Greek word for money or manna or whatever you know, version of money you want to talk about, it's only about 30 times. How about heaven? Jesus talks about heaven more than 90 times in the, in the, in the, in the New Testament, and that was his most popular teaching. Anybody have heard that before? He talks about heaven more than any other time. Wrong again. His number one teaching was on the kingdom. It's mentioned well over 100 times by Jesus in the New Testament, and especially the Gospels. It is by far what his earthly ministry on this earth was centered around. And it is, was the framework of his every action, the restoration of the kingdom of God within the hearts and minds of all people. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He told people to repent, to turn from their sins, but then gave the reason because there is a kingdom that is coming and being restored. And this is critical to understanding the words of Jesus in John chapter 3, is, to understand, and is also to understand the person that he is talking to and that person's mindset and worldview. Remember that John chapter 3 is not just a large theological treatise by Jesus. This is a discussion that he is having with a person. And that person is Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a member of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was the ruling council of Jerusalem and greater Israel. It was kind of like the Vatican of the Jewish faith at the time. They were made up of two factions, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, which means he was very, very, very educated in the Torah and the prophets and all of Jewish history. When we talk about somebody going to seminary today or Bible college. He would have a Ph.D. on top of his Ph.D. in, Jew in Jewish religions. That is how educated the Pharisees were. So he is a very educated man. And like many Jews of his day, he is waiting for Messiah to come, Messiah means Savior, to come and lead Israel back to its place as a dominant world power. That's what they thought the Messiah was going to do, that he was going to restore Israel to being the superpower of the world that it was during David and Solomon's time. Nicodemus, though, he sees something in Jesus. He believes Jesus is at least a prophet like Elijah, and he's wondering secretly if he is a Messiah. So that's why he comes to him at night. He doesn't want to necessarily put his position in the Sanhedrin at risk, so he kind of sneaks over to Jesus' house, crawls over the back fence, goes in through the back door and says, hey, Jesus, let's have a talk about, about who you are and everything. And also key to understanding John chapter 3 is that we have to realize that these are two Jewish rabbis speaking to one another in a way that rabbis debate an issue. I don't know if you've ever watched two Jewish people debating a topic back and forth to one another. Where us in our Western world, if you come up to me and you say that the sky is orange, I'm just going to look at you and I'm going to say, you're just wrong. Okay, the sky is blue. 
We're just gonna we're just gonna say, okay, you're an idiot. The sky is blue. That's the way us and our Western European things debate things. We just automatically tell you you're wrong. A Jewish person, on the other hand, will just simply ask a series of questions, and that's what is happening back back and forth here between Jesus and and Nicodemus here. So let's watch Jesus take on an Old Testament teacher and take him from his focus on serving God from the perspective of a fear of hell and an obedience to a, an external law to a realization of the idea of what the gospel of the kingdom is really about. John chapter 3, verse 1, I'm reading from the New King James Version. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have ever eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world may through him might be saved. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you, Father, for your word. And I ask, Lord, that you just begin to form this idea of the kingdom of God within each one of our spirits. Because this is critical to us living in these last days, is to have an idea of the kingdom that exists around us and understanding our part in it, Father. So Lord, I just ask for supernatural revelation to be upon every person here, that they may hear the word of the Lord and do it. Father God, I thank you and I ask this in your name. Amen. Now the big idea that I want to bring out today is that the importance of us having a correct understanding of the gospel of the kingdom. 
After salvation, it's probably the most important thing for a Christian to understand. And it's important for you to understand that because if you want to live a life that is pleasing to God, and not only pleasing to God, but that makes a difference in eternity, you have to have an understanding of what this gospel of the kingdom is. Now in John chapter 3, Jesus takes Nicodemus on a journey and transitions his thinking from an Old Testament mindset and starts to transition it now into that New Testament mindset. And that's the same journey that all of us have to take this morning. The first thing that we have to realize is that heaven is set up as a kingdom. It is not a democracy. It is not a republic. It is not a socialist form of government. It is not a communist form of government. It is a kingdom. A kingdom means that there is a king that rules from a throne. I know that's a little bit weird for our American sentiments. I mean, we fought a war to get rid of a king, right? And... We have to, to get out of our American ideas of what a kingdom is and understand that God has set up a kingdom in eternity and he rules from it as a king. And God has absolute authority over his realm. And especially those who call themselves Christians who have bowed a knee and said, Lord, I want to become part of this kingdom. And one of the things that a king does is he, as he rules is he delegates certain jobs to trusted servants. A king doesn't rule all by himself. He rules with people under him that help him to administra administrate his kingdom. One of his first servants in creation that God had was named Adam. Adam was formed to be a viceroy or a governor over this planet. Some people would, would go as far as saying he was a god over this planet. I don't think we can go that far. But he was definitely a governor over the and a king of the planet Earth. That is what God has created him to. Adam exercised great authority. God told him to take dominion over this planet. Dominion means you're exercising rulership over something. And especially he did that in the Garden of Eden. I mean, if you think about it, Adam came pre-programmed right from the hand of God. When God blew into him the breath of life, he blew into him a great deal of knowledge. I mean, Adam went and just gave a name to all the plants, the animals, and everything else in creation. So Adam wasn't this caveman, you know, bopping Eve on the head and dragging her back to a cave to become his wife. He came pre-programmed from God. And when Adam rebelled through the temptation of Eve, he decided to follow Satan's word instead of God. And what happened is this kingdom, just like an evil ruler can take a country and turn it to, into just a horrible place to live. If you get the wrong leader in, in, in power, they can really mess up a country, right? We see this in America. We see this throughout the world. Wrong guy gets in power, and all of a sudden, everything just goes to heck. And this is what happened when Adam rebelled, when he said, yeah, you know, I'm going to go over here and try this through it. I know, I know God told me not to touch it. I know God told me not to have it. But I, 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 I'm going to believe this guy because, man, that snake sounds really, he sounds, he's making a lot of sense here. It's like Adam just lowered the drawbridge to the castle, opened up the porculus and said, okay, enemy, come on in and do what you want. And that's what happened to planet Earth, in effect, when, that, when this happened, when he allowed Satan into the kingdom to kick him off the throne and take it for himself. 
All redemptive history, when we look at the Old Testament, when we look through Genesis through Malachi, all of this is about the restoration of that kingdom. All of biblical history from Genesis to Malachi and from Malachi to Revelation is all about the restoration of the kingdom of God within the hearts and minds of people. And even in the early days of Israel, if you remember in the early days of Israel, God guides his people through prophets. He guides his people through judges. He guides his people through all kinds of different ways. And he, he wants to be the absolute ruler over his people. But his people kept rebelling. They kept sinning. They kept just saying, I don't want to live under God's rule. I don't want to, to follow the things that God has to say to me. And all this rebellion by Israel against God kind of comes to a head in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 8 and from um, chapters 1 through 8 is about the prophet Samuel. Prophet Samuel rises up as a prophet and a judge. A judge back then was, was simply a ruler. He was uh, raised up to lead the nation of Israel at the time. And so he led the nation of Israel for decades as their prophet and restored the true worship of God after they, the, all the tribes fragmented as a nation and turned their back on, on the God that saved them from, from Egypt. But now Samuel's getting a little old and the nation is kind of wondering, you know, they're looking at him saying, man, you're getting kind of old. And, you know, you're not, probably not going to be along much longer and your kids, man, your kids, we can't trust them. They're, they're just all over the place. So, so what's going to happen once you die? I mean, are we just going to fall back under the judgment of God? Is, is God going to provide somebody else? And this is kind of where we pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 8 here. It says that then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like the other nations. Again, that word judge means to rule. But the, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge or rule over us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. I don't know about you, but that last statement by God to Samuel there, it sounds like he's lamenting this. Like he's, it's, it's like God is, is sitting here like this and going, I don't know what to do with these people. I, they, they're rejecting me. They don't want me ruling over them. So I'm going to say, I'm going to give them what I call the Burger King judgment here. Have it your way. If you want a king, have a king. And if you keep reading in that chapter, Samuel, Samuel warns them of everything bad that a king is going to bring with them, and they still choose to have a human king instead of having God rule over them. Now Nicodemus, back to John chapter 3, Nicodemus is very keenly aware of this incident in Jewish national history. And yet, like many of us being Christian in America, being Christians in America, he is wrestling against very strong instincts, and two in particular, and, and two very strong emotions. He, first, he is a patriotic Israelite, just like we want to be patriotic Americans. This is, he is a very patriotic Israelite. He wants the enemies of his country, and in this case, Rome, defeated and the glory of Israel restored. 
Just like an American Christian is going to say, yay, America, number one. We want America to be number one. Nicodemus wants Israel to be number one. He wants them to rise up again as world power. And the second thing that Nicodemus is struggling with is his knowledge of God's displeasure that mankind insists on throwing off God's kingdom rule. They insist on being led by men and not by God. And it is the height of hubris and the sin of arrogance that drives men and women to want to rule themselves apart from God. That is why we need a restoration of the kingdom. Because it's at the heart of a person that, that has this kind of arrogance that says in their hearts, you know what, God? I can run my life better than you can. I, I know more than you do. You, you, you don't understand the world that we live in. I know more than you about this. I mean, people view God like a teenager builds their parents or looks at their parents. They look at, you know, when you were growing up, I remember I used to look at my mom and dad and think, man, you guys are so old. You know, they're in their 30s. I, I'm thinking, you're so old, you're out of step. You don't understand what it's like now. You know, I don't want, the rules that you put down, they're just so old and ancient. You don't understand that that's not the way society is now. And you don't understand what I'm going through and all this. Well, this is the same way that a lot of people view God. And these same people that view God like this are the same people who are going to go, you know, God, I want your blessings. I want you to kind of be around in my life. I want you to protect me from harm. I want to make sure that you, you give me enough money. You give me the great job. You make sure I have an education. You make sure I have the right man or woman in my life so I live happily ever after with a picket fence and a nice house and, and have a nice retirement plan. You know, I want, I want your blessings, God. I want your hand in my life, but I want nothing to do really with you. This is how people treat God when they won't have him as a king. I want you on my terms, God, not on your terms. And that is why Jesus' answers here are so earth-shattering for Nicodemus. And I want to say this very emphatically. Jesus' mission on earth has nothing to do with propping up earthly kingdoms. Jesus' mission on earth has nothing to do with propping up earthly kingdoms. He is not interested in making sure you're comfortable in your earthly existence at the cost of your eternal destiny. That is a very, very important point for us to understand in this gospel age that we, people will say, Jesus wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise, and, and white picket fence, and new car, and all that. Jesus isn't so interested in that if it leads you away from God. He wants you in his kingdom. Jesus' mission is the restoration of God's throne in the hearts of men and women. You see, Jesus sees right through Nicodemus' original statement and strikes immediately at the core of the matter. Nicodemus begins with a traditional Jewish greeting saying, you know, complimenting him and, and, and kind of building it up. Jesus sees right through it and strikes immediately at the core of the matter. Implied in Jesus' first statement is saying, look, I am not here to restore Israel's kingdom. That's not my mission here. 
I am not here. Instead, he goes right to this, the core issue where he says, I am here to restore God's kingdom in the hearts and lives of people. And this can only be done spiritually through the born again experience. Why is the born again experience that Jesus is emphatically insisting on here so important? Because humanity has tried to live for God by conscience in the first part of the Bible, government toward the end of Genesis, law for 4,000 years prior to this discussion that was happening in the middle of the night. It has not worked. It will never work because it doesn't deal with the central problem, and that is the fallen heart of humanity through the fall of man. If we will not learn the lessons of history, we will be doomed to repeat them. And mankind never, ever, ever learns the lessons of history. If we've been around for about 6,000, 7,000 years, we have never learned. <laughs> we may learn the dates in school, but we never learn the lessons of history because we just go back and repeat them again. And that is because human rebellion always leads to spiritual blindness. It takes away our ability to perceive what truth really is. And that is why Jesus said, you must be born again. He says it twice in verse 3 and in verse 5. And the rest of John chapter 3 is meant to prove that one idea, that you must be born again, that this is a spiritual thing. It is not a human thing. It is not something like, like Nicodemus sarcastically saying, oh, what am I supposed to do, jump back in my mama's womb? Are you kidding? Look how big I am. That is not what he's saying. This is a spiritual matter that has to happen within the heart of each person. And that is why... Jesus emphatically says twice, you must be born again, when he said that which, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. So even if somehow we could shrink ourselves and put us back into our mom's wound, it is not going to make a difference because we're going to be born with that same sinful nature that, we're born, that we were going to be born with in the first place. And that's why he said that which is born of spirit is spirit. This is a spiritual exercise. This is not something you and I can do in our flesh. And that's why Jesus said, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Jesus is in effect saying, Nicodemus, I want you to take a moment and consider our history. We've tried every possible way for humanity to govern itself, and it has only led to death, it has only led to misery. It has only met, led to evil and such great evil that God himself stated that he never, ever thought this could ever become a reality. God says that in the Bible, particularly when he's talking about offering child sacrifice to idols. He, he said, this thought has never even crossed my mind. You guys have become so evil. But this is the good news of the kingdom. This is the gospel. Jesus was not here to set up an earthly kingdom that will eventually become corrupted. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, and he's saying to all men and women, you must be born again. This is about the restoration of God's original creative purpose for this planet. What we saw in the Garden of Eden, which was the reign and rule of God in the hearts, 
minds, and spirits of all people. The good news of the kingdom is wrapped up in the message that was begun by John the Baptist and Jesus continued, and that is to repent. What does repent mean? Repent means you need to die to your ways. It means you are to die to your thinking. It means that you are to die to your will and you must be born again. Let God take over your life and let him come to live inside you so that your thoughts are his thoughts. Your plans are his plans. Your ideas are, your, are his ideas. Because you know what? You can't do it by yourself. You can't try to be good. You can't try to do it in your own strength. But you know what? God is very good at being God. As a matter of fact, he's excellent at being God. And if you just surrender your life to him, he will come and take up residence in you. He will come and make his life yours. You will think his thoughts, your plans will be his plans. Your actions will be his actions because it's him being God through you. The born again experience is summed up in simply saying your life is simply allowing him to exercise his kingdom reign. Thank you for tuning in to the Whitehall Assembly of God podcast. This is Pastor John Oscar, the senior pastor of Whitehall Assembly of God. If these messages have blessed you, I just encourage you to subscribe to these podcasts and you'll be able to hear every single message that comes out of Whitehall Assembly. If you are interested, go on Facebook and like us on Facebook. We do have a Facebook page, Whitehall Assembly in beautiful Whitehall, Wisconsin. We also have a website that you can visit, whitehallassembly.org, or you can come visit us in person. We are located on the corner of Dewey Street and Sheila Street in Whitehall, Wisconsin. We hope to see you there someday. If these messages have blessed you, I'd just like to encourage you to contribute toward us being able to continue to bring them to you. You can see that on our website, top right corner of the page. If you have any questions, you can contact me at my email, pastorjohnoscar at gmail.com. If you don't mind, I would just like to take a moment to pray for you before we go today. Father God, I just ask, Lord, that every single person who listens to these messages will be brought into a deeper relationship with you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let them experience the love and forgiveness that Jesus bought for us on Calvary's cross. I ask, Father, that you just use it to enrich their lives, that you use it to make them good ambassadors of the kingdom of God, and bring them into your presence someday. Let them be fruitful, let them multiply, and let them be used mightily for you in these last days. Father, I commit them to your care now. In Jesus' name, amen. God richly bless you.